Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. So today, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Leviticus. Last week, we made note of the fact that this book provides answers to the dilemma that the Israelites would have now been facing. They had erected the tabernacle for the first time, and now that God's glory had descended upon it, they needed, how they were ab- they needed to know how they'd be able to draw near. God's answer is through sacrifice. Leviticus chapter one gives instructions to the burnt offering, and this morning we'll be looking at chapters two and three, which give instructions in regards to the grain offering and the peace offering. And if, if you aren't there already, turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter two and follow along as I read. Leviticus chapter two, verses one through 16. Now, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy, of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of grain, offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be made of fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it, it is a grain offering." Now if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer it up in smoke, any leaven or any honey, as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all offerings you shall offer salt." Also, if you bring a grain offering of early, ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth, for the grain offering of your early, ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion, part of its grit in its oil with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. So reads the word of the living God. And as we can see from verse one, anyone who presents a grain offering to the Lord is to do so from fine flour. 
And this represents the same standard that we saw last week of the animals with no defect. They're only to be the best, and the people that are to make their grain offerings from fine flour means it's only to be from the best. And this fine flour is the basic ingredient that the grain offering is to be made from. We can see from our text, there are four different types of grain offerings that are mentioned. Ones from uncooked grains, verses one through three, an offering baked in an oven, verse four, one made on the griddle, verse five, and an offering made in a pan, verse seven. And each type has its own specific instructions. We see that the uncooked grains are to be made using oil and frankincense. The grains cooked in an oven are to be made into unleavened cakes mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. The grains cooked in a griddle are to be broken up into bits after they are cooked, and then oil is to be poured on top. And if the offering is made in a pan, its ingredients are to be fine flour with oil. Furthermore, we can see in verses 11 through 13 that no grain offering that is to be burnt on the altar shall be made with leaven or honey, but all the grain offerings are to be seasoned with salt. And while we may be able to make educated guesses as to the significance behind both the ingredients and the specific details of each type of grain offering, at best, they'd only be guesses because the Bible doesn't spell out why exactly the people were to do these things. We don't know the reason behind them. But one thing that we can glean from these detailed instructions is the way in which God is to be approached. We can only do so on his terms, and the way is always marked out by specific details. The Israelites were not able to draw near by making up regulations of their own standard. Neither did they just choose to worship God in any way that seemed fit to them. No, God always provides the details on what men and women must do if we are to approach him. And if we're unwilling to do things his way, then we'll never be able to draw near. Not then and not now. And as we read on, we see in verse two that the offerer is instructed to bring the grain offering to the priest. The priest is to take a handful of the grain offering and place it on the altar as a memorial portion. And the Hebrew word used here for memorial portion conveys the idea of remembering or calling to mind. And the Israelites are to remember and be thankful to God for all that he has done for them. And one way they can do this is by offering the grain offering to the Lord. Also, when they do this, it would have the effect of calling to the Lord's mind that they're doing things his way. As one commentator has said, this offering is a form of returning to God a part of what, of what he has graciously given. It provides the means by which Israel expresses gratitude and appeals to God for his continued acts that bring physical life and health. We can also see from Leviticus chapter two that this offering has both similarities and differences from the burnt offering. The similarities. It's to be offered up in smoke and it is a soothing aroma to the Lord. 
and the differences. It's composed of grain, not the flesh of an animal, and not all of it is to be burnt up, but only a handful. And we can see from verse three where the remainder of the offering is to go. It belongs to Aaron and his sons. God has set apart the remainder as a thing most holy, and as so is reserved for food for Aaron and the priests. And these are the general instructions for the grain offering and the four specific types that are to be offered to the Lord. And as we sit here this morning, removed from the original audience by both the passing of time and the changing of culture, we may be tempted to ask ourselves, why grain? It's so basic, and there's nothing really exciting about it. We can easily understand why God would want an unblemished bull, sheep, or goat. Those things would have been highly valuable and cost the offer a great deal to give away. But grain is so commonplace and ordinary. Yet this is precisely why God wants the Israelites to bring him their grain offerings. He's not just looking for a grand gesture once a year. No, he wants them to realize and express thankfulness to him for meeting all of their needs, even their most basic ones. Their own hands would have been hard at work to get the grain, and there would have been even more work involved grinding the grain down to a fine flour in order to make bread. Yet God wanted them to remember that just as their own hands were at work to make this happen, so too were his. God instructs Moses to remind the Israelites of this very thing. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and huge cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Because of the Lord, this people would no longer have to spend their days at work making bricks for the Egyptians. They can now work on their own land, tending to their own crops, making their own bread. But the Lord wants to make sure that they don't just leave him behind in the dust once they arrive in the promised land. So he instructs them to bring their grain offerings to him so that they might remember that all of their work is to be done unto the Lord. In church, this thing, the same thing is just as true for us today. As theologian Derek Tidball puts it, The grain offering encourages us not to make work an end in itself, but to bring our work and lay it on the altar so that through it we are serving not ourselves, but the Lord. And this is something that's far easier said than done. For it's much easier to compartmentalize our lives and insert God in certain areas while we leave him out of others. Sunday's for the Lord. Monday through Friday is for work, and Saturday is for relaxing with the family. And while this may be the setup that many, and sadly many in the church, may have structured their lives around, 
we need to know that this is not the way God desires things to be. Yes, God wants to be with you right here and right now, Sunday morning in his sanctuary. But he also wants to be with you on the job site Monday morning and on the couch Saturday night. We aren't to leave him at home from nine to five and act as if he doesn't exist between those hours. No, he wants to be inserted at the very center of our lives, even in the mundane and day-to-day routine of work. In Colossians 3:23 through 24, Paul reminds those that are slaves of this very truth. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And friends, when we understand this truth and latch onto it, it opens up the doors for each and every day to be the Lord's day. And don't get me wrong, scripture gives us clear instructions that we're to gather together and not forsake gathering together. So this is by no means an excuse to not come to church on Sunday morning and worship less. Rather, it teaches us that our worship ought not to stop as soon as we step out of this place. It can keep on going right throughout the week. And as we return to our text in Leviticus chapter two, we also see instructions being given for a special kind of grain offering, the offering of first fruits. And we see this in verses 14 through 16. Leviticus chapter two, verses 14 through 16. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth. For the grain offering of your early ripened things, you shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. And as we read this, we need to remember where these people were when they're being given these instructions. These instructions for the offering of first fruits. They're in the middle of a desert. They've been slaves for hundreds of years and are just newly freed. They have no homeland. They have no fields. They have no crops. And sadly, we know because of their unbelief, they're about to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and eat nothing but manna and some quail. And inevitably, the people must have had some practical questions about what is being said here. We can almost picture some guy in the back as Moses is giving these instructions, slowly raising his hand. Hey, Moses, quick question here. So, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, I'm sure you realize this because you seem like a pretty smart guy, but we don't have any grain. We don't have any fields to harvest any grain from. And we're currently camped in a desert. (laughs) To which we can almost envision Moses responding, yeah, Bob, you can put your hand down now. You see, we might not have these things yet, but God has promised that he will give them to us. In fact, this is one of the things that the grain offering is supposed to remind us of. It should cause us to remember that all we have is from the Lord. 
And when we remember this, it will allow us to joyfully return to the Lord what he has given to us. And right before the Israelites enter into the promised land, Moses reiterates this exact thing to the people. Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11. Then it shall be, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who was in the office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. You shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God in worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. And friends, I gotta ask, as we consider the words of Deuteronomy chapter 26, is this our response when we return to the Lord what he has already given to us? Do you recognize right up front that all you have has been given to you by God? And when you give to the Lord, does it bring about weeping because you can't stand to lose what you have falsely concluded belongs to you? Or does it bring about worship because you can't wait to give back to the one who has so graciously given to you? And it's easy for us to see that for the Israelites, this is the only response that would make any sense, to joyfully return to the Lord what he has so clearly given to them. Yet time and time again, we see them forgetting about the Lord. We see them holding on rather than letting go, saying to themselves, it wasn't the Lord's hand that brought about all these blessings. I attained these things for myself. It was through the labor of my own hands that I have all that I have. Who is the Lord that he should take what is rightfully mine? They blinded themselves from the truth, bought into their own lie, and as a result, rather than graciously placing back into the Lord's hand what was rightfully his, they greedily tightened their grip and refused to let go. We have their lessons to learn from, and let's not make these same mistakes. Let us realize that all of our work is to be done unto the Lord, and let us remember that all we have has come from the Lord's hand, even if it also has involved our own hands 
to bring about these things. Let us remember and then joyfully give back to the Lord what he has given to us. And as the Israelites were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, God is letting them know how they are to draw near to him. He's given them instructions in regard to the burnt offering in chapter one and the grain offering in chapter two. And as we move on to chapter three, we'll see that he also provides instruction for the peace offering. Look at Leviticus chapter three, verse one. Leviticus 3, 1 through 17. Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he is going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons the priest shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. From the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, He shall offer it male or female without defect. If he is going to offer a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it before the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. From the sacrifice of peace offerings, he shall bring as an offering by fire to the Lord its fat, the entire fat tail which he shall remove close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as food, an offering by fire to the Lord. Moreover, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and shall lay his hand on its head, and slay it before the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. From it he shall present his offering as an offering by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall then offer them up in smoke on the altar as food, an offering by fire for a soothing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It is a perpetual statute throughout all your generations. In all your dwellings, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. And we see here in chapter three, the peace offering. And verse one makes a clear delineation from the grain offering of chapter two. It lets those who are hearing or reading these words know that an animal is once again what is required. And we see this first from the word sacrifice. And this is actually the first time that we see this word in Leviticus. The word is a noun, meaning a slaughter or the victim of an act, clearly shifting away from grain and back to animals. For nobody grinding grain down in the fields would describe this process as a slaughter. Yeah, you know, I was just working today, slaughtering some grain. That doesn't make any sense. So it's shifting back to animal sacrifices. 
And beyond the use of this word sacrifice, we also get a further understanding of this offering by looking at the original language that is used. The word that's used to describe this specific sacrifice has the familiar root from the Hebrew word shalom, which is one that many of us may be able to define without the aid of a lexicon. It means peace or completeness, thus bringing us to our English translation of the peace offering. But as the writers of the Expositor's Bible commentary have noted, this is not merely an offering that establishes a cessation of war and hatred, an understanding of peace that is frequent in modern use of the term. Instead, it contributes to a harmonious relationship between the offerer and God. A good way to describe this is with the term fellowship. And we can also clearly see from the text that this offering shares many similarities with the burnt offering. The animals that are to be sacrificed are to be taken either from the herd or from the flock. The offer is to lay their hand on the head of the animal and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The blood of the animal is to be sprinkled on the altar and the animal is to be offered up in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Yet this offering also has its own distinctive features. The animals to be used for this sacrifice could be either male or female animals. No birds were allowed to be sacrificed. And the most significant difference is that the whole of the animal is not to be burnt up on the altar. Specifics are given as to what parts of each animal are, are to be offered to God. If the animal was taken from the herd, then the priest is to burn on the altar all the fat that is on the internal organs, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the lobe of the liver. If the animal is a lamb from the flock, then the priest is to offer up on the altar its fat, the entire fat tail, all the fat that is on the internal organs, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the lobe of the liver, verses 9 and 10. And also, if the animal is a goat from the flock, then the priest is to offer up on the altar all the fat that is on the internal organs, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the lobe of the liver, verses 14 and 15. And as we can see, the whole animal is not burnt up, but a lot of their fat is. We're told why this is so at the end of verse 16 into verse 17. It says, all the fat is the Lord's, it is a perpetual statute throughout all your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. And these are the parts of the animal that are to be burnt up on the altar to the Lord. But it leaves us with a question, what happens to the rest of the animal? And while we don't see any further details here in chapter 3, we do find further instructions in Leviticus chapter seven. And before we turn there, we also need to take note of the fact that the focal point from which these sacrifices are currently being viewed is from the viewpoint of the people. And that emphasis shifts in chapter six, verse eight, where Moses is then speaking to Aaron and his sons rather than the sons of Israel. 
Leviticus chapter seven, verses 15 through 18, Moses is now speaking to the priests. And it lets us know where a portion of the remaining animal is to go. Leviticus seven fifteen through 18. Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning, but if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what is left of it may be eaten. But what is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. So if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it up will not be accepted. And it will, be not, it will not be reckoned to his benefit. It shall be an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it will bear his own iniquity. We're given lots of additional details here from chapter seven about the peace offering. We see that there's three specific reasons why the worshiper would bring a peace offering, either as thanksgiving to fulfill a vow or a free will offering. And furthermore, we're also given details here, and if we were to keep on reading further in chapter seven, as to what should happen to the remaining portion of the animal. If we were to continue reading, we would see that the focal point, once again in chapter seven, shifts back to the perspective of the people, and they're given instructions that from their peace offerings, the breast of the animal and also the right thigh belongs to the priest. You can find this for yourself in verses 28 through 34 of chapter seven. The priests are to receive these parts and the verses that we just read spell out where the rest of the animal is to go. The rest of the animal is given back to the offerer and is to be eaten as a fellowship meal. We have seen these instructions given to us right here in Leviticus chapter seven, but we see this spelt out even more clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And before the people move into the promised land, Moses is reviewing the laws of the sanctuary and within this review we see the fellowship meal that follows the peace offering. Verses five through seven say, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. If we jump down to verses 17 and 18, we see that further instructions say, you are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or new wine or oil, or the firstborn of your herd or flock, or any of your votive offerings which you vow, or your free will offerings, or the contribution of your hand. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, and your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. What this is telling the Israelites, is that when they move into Canaan 
and God sets up the location of the tabernacle, that this is where they're to bring their offerings. And in the case of the peace offering, after they offer it in the tabernacle, they are then to take the remaining portion of the animal and eat it and rejoice before the Lord. And not just individually either. We see that they're to do this themselves and also with their households. They shall eat before the Lord their God. They're to enjoy this fellowship meal with their sons and daughters, with their male and female servants, and with the Levites who live in their towns. And after this offering is made, they are to rejoice before the Lord their God for all that he has done. Because of the plan that he instituted and the sacrificial system that he put into place, this people can draw, now draw near his presence and their fellowship can be restored. And after they gathered in the sanctuary, worshiping him for all that he's done in their lives, they can sit down together and enjoy a communal meal and celebration and commemoration of their great God. And what an amazing sight this must have been to see. This unlikely and unworthy group of people now have the unique privilege to have fellowship with the Lord and one another in his sanctuary. And we would be amiss if we did not make the clear connection here for what is it that we, an unlikely and an unworthy group of people, have the unique privilege of doing. We too can draw near the Lord and worship him. We can be at peace with the God of the universe and fellowship with him and one another in his sanctuary. And not because we have brought an animal to the Lord to offer as a peace offering on our behalf, but because Christ laid down his life on our behalf. Colossians 1:19 through 20 spells this out for us. It says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus sacrificed his own body. He shed his own blood so that an unlikely and an unworthy group of people can be at peace with the Lord. And if this doesn't cause us to rejoice, I don't know what else will. And the Lord makes it very clear that he doesn't want us to just forget about this great work that he has done. So on the night of his betrayal, the Lord Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we can be at peace with God and fellowship with him and one another. We can gather together in the Lord's sanctuary, worshiping him, and we too can sit down and enjoy a communion meal, remembering and rejoicing in all that the Lord has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just thank you once again for this time to gather here and worship you, Lord, to open up your word and see what it has to say to us. 
Just pray as we go about our lives, Lord, that we would remember that you not only desire for us to worship you while we're here, gathered together in this place, uh, but our worship is to transfer to all that we do, is to go with us Monday through Friday on the weekend, Lord, uh, right through the whole week till we come back to here. We pray that we remember this and just remember all that you've done for us and that we would worship you all the more because of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 9.30 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.